And today we resume our sermon series through the book of Luke. Today we will be back in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Let me read for us Luke chapter 8, 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up from behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word read, and it's a comfort to our souls. It's is words of life to us. Please may we hear from you this morning. That is, our, that is the desperate plea of our hearts that we hear from the living God. Jesus, may we love you more and more. In your holy name we pray. Amen. One of the interesting complications of a pandemic that I hadn't foreseen is trying to explain a pandemic to a three-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, when everything in life changes, you know, you can't go to the playgrounds for a while, um, and the, the swings are still tied up, but for a while, like, playgrounds were really not allowed to go to them, we're allowed to see our friends, and, and we have to explain this to Caleb why, you know, we're not seeing anybody, especially during that lockdown period in March, April, and May, um, and so we always told him, well, there's this, the, 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 because of sickness, and I'm curious how he'll, like, think back when he's older, but there's, you know, a long period of time where there's just sickness everywhere, 
Um, but in the, in the beginning part of the lockdown, Caleb, who's uh, the most outgoing person I or you have ever met, uh, it was just difficult for him, and he missed his friends, especially from Vine Street, and we um, kind of were trying to explain him why he couldn't come and see his friends, and, and to cheer him up, we told him, look, when, when summer comes and this has all gone away, we're going to have a huge sprinkler party, and we're going to invite all your friends, and it's going to be awesome. Because in March, we were still thinking, well, you know, by summer, when it gets warm, this will have all gone away. The ironic part is that probably by summer, it will be better. We just didn't realize that that was going to be a year later than what we were originally thinking. That was not the timing that we had originally thought. And that's one of the things that this pandemic has done, is it's kind of thrown all our timelines out the window. Very few things have gone according to our proposed timeline, according to our timing. Another example, uh, one of the first Sundays when we were back in person in May, Addie woke up with a fever uh, Sunday I was supposed to preach. Um, and of course, like, on a normal Sunday pre-pandemic would have been, well, okay, kids get colds, but now you never know. And so uh, we had to try to go get Addie, uh, have her get a COVID test, but there wasn't time before I was supposed to preach. So then Sunday morning at 9 a.m., I'm calling Dan, I'm calling Chandler, like, what are we going to do? Like, I, you know, my kid may have COVID, I don't know. And so I ended up uh, recording myself in my attic. And again, Addie waking up on a Sunday morning with a fever was not the timing that I wanted. And here's the thing, God holds time in his hands. He existed before time. He exists after time will end. He's outside of time. He's bringing all things to, to pass according to his sovereign will. And so what do we do when God's timing is not our timing? when uh, things are not proceeding according to the timeline that we want. And we're going to see two instances specifically that we're going to draw out of our text this morning of when God's timing is not our own timing. And the first is going to be, well, how do we have faith when God seems slow to act? And then second, how do we have faith when God seems to be too late? So looking at our text, again, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, so just a reminder where we are. Um, we have, in chapter 8, gone through some of Jesus' parables, uh, some more of his miracles when Jesus calms the storm, when he casts the, the legion of demons out of the, the men um, uh, across the, or in the region of Gerasenes. And, and just so you know, we are coming to kind of a, a midway point in the Gospel of Luke that will hit in Luke chapter 9. Where this whole time we've been introduced to Jesus and his ministry, we're seeing kind of what his teaching looked like, what his uh, miraculous ministry looked like. And then in Luke 9, there's going to come a point where Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. And the whole rest of the book is Jesus traveling to Jerusalem to be crucified. So we're almost to that point, but not quite. And we're still in this kind of beginning part of Jesus' ministry. So uh, before we get in, or, or to kind of get started, let's go ahead and look at the scene and setting in our story here in verses 40 to 42. I'm going to read it for us. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So the crowds at this point are still welcoming Jesus. Um, in Luke, the crowds are kind of the curious onlookers who are like, who is this guy? This is interesting. At this point, they're still excited about Jesus, but we know within about 10 chapters, they'll be the ones calling for his crucifixion. But more importantly, we're introduced to this man named Jairus. 
Uh, what's interesting is we get proof here that not all religious leaders rejected Jesus. There was a large number of them did, and it seems that most of them did, but here's one who didn't. So, it was not, so there were some religious leaders who did not uh, outright reject Jesus. And it says that he was a ruler of the synagogue. That means that he was likely probably the head religious leader in the synagogue of his town. He would have been what's called the chief elder of that synagogue. So Israel, when it first began, when God called Israel out of Egypt, as a nation, it was, it was structured into, into families and clans. Clans would have been extended families. And these clans would have been uh, led by elders of that clan. Um, by, and, and they were the kind of ones who had leadership and authority in that clan. By the time that Jesus came along, the clan structure had ended. Israel had grown too big and complicated. Even the tribal structure was really confused and messy. But they still had this idea of elders, and instead they were leaders within the local synagogue. And lo and behold, just fun side tidbit, is that the Christians, the early Christians, ended up taking that same idea and getting elders in the New Testament, or pastors. That's where that whole office of elder pastor comes from. But this would have been, he would have been basically the senior pastor of this synagogue. And in a Jewish town, he wasn't just a religious leader, but he also would have been an influential political leader. He was a big deal in the city. And look at how it describes him. He's not sending someone else to do his bidding. He comes himself to Jesus, this great man, and dignified man, and he falls on his feet. Uh, at Jesus' feet, which I tell you what, you don't, need to know, you don't need to go to seminary to realize that that was not what a dignified man did in the ancient Near East. It's never been what a dignified man does. The president of the United States, if there's video footage of him pleading on, you know, at someone's feet, it would be very embarrassing. That's speaking to the urgency of this man's request. And we're given that request in verse 42, that he has an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she's dying. It's not that she's sick. It doesn't say she's very, it's, it's literally she's in the act of dying. Like her time is limited. And so Jairus comes to Jesus and he pleads with her. It's funny, or not funny, it's, it's poignant that Luke gives us this detail that she was his only daughter. Luke does this. He gives us these like very emotional details. He does it with um, when Jesus raises the widow's son and it specifies that this was her only son. One of the reasons I love the Bible is that it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a book that deals with real tragedies. This is not like a self-help book that you're going to find on like the Christian bestseller, although it is a Christian bestseller. It's not about living your best life. No, I mean, it deals with real tragedies and real hardships in life and then how God brings salvation and redemption in the midst of that. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It deals with real issues and real stuff. And here's a man who his only daughter, his 12-year-old beloved daughter, is dying. And even though he's a great man, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus because he believes maybe this man can do something about this. One of the things I want to point out before we move into the meat of our story of, of, of when God seems slow, faith when God seems slow, is I just want to point out, this is a 12-year-old girl. And within our story, there's actually a second story we're going to see, which is of when a, a, a social outcast woman is also healed. They're both women. And, and this story is not about gender, but it exists as a subtext underneath it because Jesus is speaking very profoundly to, to what is truly worth something by who he decides to minister to and who he cares about. Um, I just read an uh, introduction to uh, like a short intro to ancient Greek history. I know you all think that sounds really interesting, and it was really interesting. I can give you the, uh, I can give you the author and, and, and all that if you want it later. 
But um, when you look at kind of ancient Greco-Roman culture, women were valued primarily for the fact that they could give birth to babies. And especially when you're in a militaristic kind of nation, it's really important that you birth boys because they're going to grow up to be men to defend the city. But beyond that, women didn't really have worth. In fact, in ancient Athens, it was considered very inappropriate for a woman to ever interact with a man who wasn't her husband. And so think about how you can't even go to the grocery store because there's going to be men who aren't your husband who are there. And so women were basically like quarantined forever after they were married. They weren't allowed to vote. They often, it was difficult for them to, to, to own property. They weren't allowed to attend public assemblies. I mean, their worth was birthing babies. Now, we may think, well, we've come a long way since then, and women have much more quality, and, 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 and there are many ways in which our culture is light years ahead of ancient Greece or the Greco-Roman world that Jesus was born into. But I think the Me Too movement has proven that not all is as it seems. And there still is very much the fact that men will domineer and oppress women where it is politically and socially permissible. And even after the Me Too movement, I think there, there are times when, when, when people who speak most loudly for equality, it, it just it sounds hollow. When one of the largest internet industries is the porn industry, which is the most exploitative industry of women that has ever existed. And the New York Times recently did an expose of a company, I'm not going to even name its name, a Canadian website, that massive porn website. Um, and it was an expose of how this, this porn website had videos of rape and of little girls, millions Thankfully, after this expose, there was some backlash and Discover and MasterCard and, and others were started refusing payments, but it's like, that's the tip of the iceberg. And I don't see the people crying for equality speaking out against this incredibly exploitative industry that exploits women and little girls. And so I have to think, as much as we like to proclaim how equal we are as a, so as a society, it seems kind of hollow to me. It seems like someone is just performative. But here we have Jesus who acts out of conviction that is not for show. And he demonstrates a genuine care and respect for women. And, and again, as a recent New York Times opinion piece put it, he treated women with a magnetic dignity and respect. A magnetic dignity, something that drew women to him because of his, his deep concern and respect for them that was grounded in the image of God, that all people are made with intrinsic worth and value because they are made in God's image. I think Jesus offers us more of a view of what it looks like to live in harmony between genders than anything else we see. And it's interesting because Jesus wasn't gender blind, right? Like, he only appointed men to be apostles. That's what's really, really interesting here. In one sense, like, in our culture, it's like, yeah, we're all about equality, and Jesus is awesome. But then he does these other things that seem, like, really misogynistic. Why don't you have women in your apostles? There are two kind of headwinds I think we experience living in a, a conservative, evangelical, Southern Baptist context. One is the headwinds that we experience from culture outside, which wants to erase any gender differentiation. Gender is interchangeable. In fact, gender isn't even binary. There's many genders out there. Pick your, pick your choice. That's, that's, that's a headwind we all experience. But then there's another headwind we experience that's kind of the other extreme, 
kind of this Christian patriarchy movement, which, yeah, they're, they're saying there's differences, but their problem is that they seem to reduce men and women to only their differences. And it's almost like you're creating separate species, the species of man and of woman. And Jesus kind of charters this third way where he distinguishes between men and women. There are differences, and at times we're called to different things, but he calls all people to follow him. And as Luke chapter 8 showed, he had women who were part of his essential followers doing real ministry. I just think, again, this, this, this text is not about gender, but it's a subtext under it as Jesus shows where true worth and value is and whom he cares for and whom he ministers to. And I don't want us to miss that. But again, as I mentioned, this is a story within a story. And so that brings us to our first point. What do we do when God seems slow? Look at verses 42 to 48 with me. So again, Jairus has come. He's pled with him, please, my daughter is dying. And pick up in verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It says here she'd suffer from a discharge of blood, and it seems most commentators think this was a, what's it called? <laughs> uterine hemorrhage. So basically, a, uh, the, the, her uterus is bleeding. And uh, Mark was said not to quote her on this. I'm going to quote her anyways, because who else am I going to quote, right? She said it, it didn't necessarily mean it would be dangerous or even painful, and she had this for 12 years, so clearly it wasn't dangerous. I mean, she's still alive after 12 years. But the reason why this was an issue is because it had serious social and religious implications for her as a Jew. So as, as one who experienced bleeding, Deuteronomy 15 specified that bodily discharges for men or women could be like an open sore on your body, but any kind of bodily discharge made you unclean, ceremonially unclean. You could not worship in the temple, which meant you could not have access to God's presence. But also, anyone who interacted with you was made unclean. And so if you touched, like, if you're unclean and I, and I touch this podium and then someone comes up and touches it after me, they are now unclean. You're basically a pariah at that point. And she had been suffering from this bleeding disorder for 12 years. Now, a question I, I think is a really good question to ask is, okay, wh why would God have made a ceremonial law that would create such pain for this woman. Like, what is there that's bad about bodily discharges, inherently wrong about bodily discharges? And, the, and, and there, this is a deep question. I don't have time to get into it completely. But I don't think the point of the ceremonial law was anything about inherent, like, things are inherently wrong. Something inherently wrong about a bodily discharge, something inherently wrong about having mixed fibers in your clothing. The point of the ceremonial law was that we approach God on his terms, not on ours. So we don't have to understand the reasoning behind it. And either way, Luke doesn't get into why this is the case. It's just the background subtext of what's going on. This woman, as she suffered from this 
bleeding of her uterus for 12 years, there would have been serious religious and social consequences. She would have lived as a social pariah, and, and even more importantly, she would have been separated from the God who made her. Not only that, she spent all her money on physicians. And I'll tell you what, her condition may not have been painful, but the prescriptions she got from doctors likely were. This is before the age of modern medicine, when, when doctors actually did more good than harm. And I don't know how they know this, but I guess some common prescriptions for bleeding would have been stuff like wine mixed with rubber, and alum, which is a chemical that can be toxic, and then garden crocuses, which are like flowers. So if you don't feel sick before, you're going to feel sick after you drink that, okay? And she'd had 12 years of physicians giving her these kind of quack prescriptions, and she spent all her money, and she's impoverished. But she's part of this crowd that's surrounding Jesus. And she reaches out and she touches his cloak and immediately he's healed. And Jesus blesses her after she confesses that it was her who was healed. Jesus blesses her. He tells her, go in peace. Now something is interesting. So Jesus knows when she touches his cloak. Uh, there seems to be times if you read the Gospels enough where it seems that Jesus has, like, knowledge that, that humans don't have. Like, he knows what people are thinking. Other times, he doesn't. And, and the way that theologians try to make sense of this is that Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, without ever ceasing to be God or ever ceasing to be fully human, nonetheless, at times, functioned more out of his humanity or functioned more out of his divinity. And so there are times when he's functioning more out of his divinity and he knows things that humans don't know. And that seems to be the case here. He's in a crowd where he's being pressed in, left, right, and center, but he knows who has touched him, and he knows that she's been healed. And that's why he tells her, go in peace. Now the question is, okay, well, this is a blessing. He says, go in peace. This is a blessing. Why does he bless this woman? Well, verse, let's see, what verse is it? 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. He blesses her because of her faith. Let's look at her faith, because again, this is faith when God seems slow. Twelve years is a long time. That's longer than many of us have been married. It's longer than I've been married. It's longer than some of us have been alive. And even for those of us who are older, twelve years is a very long time, no matter how old you are, especially when it involves isolation and suffering. And this woman has been trying for twelve years to be healed. And even more, you have to imagine that she's been praying for 12 years. It's a long time to have unanswered prayer. And, and she's not like she's praying for like a Mercedes, right? Or that God would make her rich. Like this seems to be something that's in line with God's will. It's like, God, because of this affliction, I cannot enter your presence. And I want to be able to be in fellowship with the God who made me. God, heal me. That seems to be something that God would want to do. And 12 years later, God has still not answered her prayer. That is a definition of a slow response. And the amazing thing is that she's still trying. Like, the heart can only handle so much disappointment, right? Like, we found this out when you're buying a house. Like, when you go, when you, try, when you put an offer on a house, if it's not accepted, this may not make any sense unless you bought a house, but there is an emotional exhaustion to that kind of disappointment. And that's just buying a house. So imagine you have this affliction that has like real ramifications and it's just disappointment after disappointment. This doctor is saying, do this, it doesn't work. Doctor, this, do this, it doesn't work. The, the heart can only handle so much disappointment before you just give up and say, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take. This woman kept trying. 
she went to Jesus and she tried again. When God is slow to respond to us, what are we tempted to think? I think there's many things we're tempted to think, but I think there are two big ones. One might be, well, maybe God isn't able for whatever reason. I don't know why. Maybe he's not able to do what I thought he could. But I think even more common is you begin to think, well, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he's not as good as I thought he was. Like He's able to do and he's just not. Maybe he just doesn't really care about me like I've been taught to believe. But she keeps trying. And we know why she keeps trying. It's because of her faith. And she knows that God still loves her and that God is able to, to heal her. And Jesus commends her and blesses her for that faith. And he restores her to fellowship with God through his healing. Here's the theological truth we find from this that we have to remind ourselves of when God seems slow. Here's the theological truth. God is never too slow. From our perspective, it may seem like he is too slow, but he's never too slow. Think about this. If God had answered her plea for healing when she wanted him to 12 years earlier, she never would have met Jesus. She didn't know 12 years before that that the one who could restore her to true fellowship with God, who could bring her true peace with God, was still growing up into a man. But that when he became an adult, he would not only heal her, but he would bring her peace with God. She didn't know that. But if God had answered her prayer earlier, she never would have met Jesus. God is never too slow. He had... We trust when he seems slow that his sovereign plan, he's doing things for a reason. We may not know them, but he's never too slow. And I have some other thoughts on her faith I want to mention real quick. The other thing we learn about this is that a small faith is enough. We're in trial and, and, and crisis and God seems slow. A small faith is enough. He says, your faith has made you well. That's what he tells us. He does not tell her, your great faith has made you well, your abundant faith, your strong faith. Sometimes we get, uh, we get caught up in this, like, okay, I, I want God to answer me, and if I had more faith, he would answer me. But God doesn't answer her because she has more faith. He answers her because she has faith. And the picture here, I think, is of a woman whose faith is not super strong, right? Like, if she had beyond a doubt certainty that Jesus could heal her, she would have stopped the procession, like the blind man crying out to Jesus, like, Jesus, heal me, heal me. They try to, to quiet the blind man. He says, no, I know Jesus can heal me. But what she does, it's like she's like in the crowd. She's like, uh, I think this could work. Let's just try it. There's no harm. Touch his cloak, see what happens. That's the picture here. She's not a woman of like this incredibly deep faith. It's a struggling faith. It's a weak faith. But a small faith is enough. And sometimes all we can bring to God is a weak faith, and Jesus accepts that. He accepts even a weak faith. But the second thing I want to point out from her faith is that, yes, even though God accepts our weak faith, Jesus wants us to grow in our faith. I mentioned how, like, sometimes Jesus acts more out of his divinity, more out of his humanity. And here, I, I think it's pretty clear that he knows that she's the one who touched him. Which is why it says that when she saw that she was not being, that she was not hidden, she came and, and she confessed. If Jesus knows who touched him, why is he like make, why is he saying who touched me? Why, is he, why couldn't he just turn and say, you know, your faith has made you well, go in peace, daughter. 
Well, Jesus accepts her weak faith, but he wants her to grow. And he asks that question because he wants her to confess publicly and to grow in her faith. To come forward and confess before all the people what God has done in her life. So yes, God accepts our weak faith, but he also wants our faith to grow. So we see here faith when God seems slow to act. The truth is that God is never slow. But what about when God is too late? Let's look at verses 49 to 56. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jairus comes to Jesus. My daughter is dying. She's literally on her deathbed. Come quickly. Jesus starts, and then he stops en route to healing this girl whom he knows is about to die. He stops to heal a woman who needed healing, but who does not seem to have been in at least any kind of immediate danger. And his stopping meant that that opportunity for healing had ended. Jesus knew this girl was as sick as she was. Why did he stop? The one commentator asked it, where are God's justice and judgment in this turn of events? Like he had to make it so that this woman came to him when he is urgently running towards a girl who is dying? God, why did you work that timing out that way? doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And Jesus speaks to Jairus in verse 50. And he calls him to greater faith. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe. See, Jairus was probably not a stranger to Jesus. He, he probably had some level of faith. He would not have come and thrown himself at the feet of Jairus unless he had seen Jesus and knew Jesus and had some pre-existing faith in who Jesus was. He believed Jesus could heal his daughter. And Jesus says, Jairus, your faith is here. I need you to bring it to here. You have faith that I can heal your daughter. I need you to have faith that's even deeper. And here's the thing is it seems that Jairus answers that call because he allows Jesus to proceed. When your daughter dies and you hear the news, the last thing you want is some guy messing with your daughter's body. Like you just want to be alone in your grief. But Jairus allows Jesus to proceed, which is his act of faith. And of course, beyond what anyone expected, the way that Jesus answers this faith in verse 44, taking her by the hand, he called, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Again, the theological truth when God seems to be too late is that God is never too late. Faith when God seems slow is recognizing and and, and remind yourself that God is never too slow. But the same thing, when God seems too late, 
it's also true that God is never too late. Remember, Jairus' daughter had died. It seemed from all practical purposes, like that window of healing is, is gone. It's over. It's a question of God's power. Is God able even in this circumstance? But God is never too late. God is able. He is able beyond what we can imagine and understand. God is never too late to be able to make peace between you and him. It doesn't matter whether you're 18 or 85. You may think, I've made my life choices. There's water under the bridge. You don't know, Mike. I have to sit with my consequences. I want you to know it's never too late for God to make peace between you and him. It doesn't matter whether you're 18 and young and bright and the world is your oyster or you're 85 looking over a life of regret and disappointment. It is never too late. God is able to make peace. He is able. It's never too late for God to make us holy. It may seem like there are sin patterns ingrained in our lives. This is just me. God is never too late to break our anger, to humble us, to put an end to our lust. God is never too late to fill us once again with his spirit, with a fresh love and passion for his kingdom and his glory. God is able to do that. He's never too late. What does faith look like when God seems to be too late? It's a radical reorienting of our understanding of God's power, that nothing is impossible with God. God is never too late. God is never too slow. There's a lot of questions that doesn't answer. Why does God allow us to think he's too slow? Why does he allow us to think he's too late? Why does he allow us to walk through the sufferings that those oftentimes bring with him? There's deep mystery to God's sovereignty and providence that we don't understand, and this text doesn't answer those questions, but what it preaches to us with authority and with strength is that no matter how long we may wait, God is never too slow. And no matter how overwhelming the circumstances may seem, God is never too late. Let's pray. Jesus, we, this year, much of our own personal timelines have been thrown out. It seems like we're always waiting, waiting for a vaccine, waiting for a quarantine to end, waiting for a test to come back. Lord, oftentimes our timeline is not your timeline. Give us faith when you seem slow, that we know that there are intentions and reasons that are happening that are far beyond our ability to understand, and you are not a God who is careless with your people. Give us faith that when you seem too late, that those circumstances are too great. Give us faith, and not just a head knowledge, but a conviction in our heart of hearts that you are able, beyond what we can understand. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.